seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. You can also find today's passage on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline. This morning we're going to be continuing our study of this letter, looking at Peter's second letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And I had mentioned when we started this letter several weeks ago that between the time of writing 1 Peter and of writing 2 Peter, there has been an increase in persecution. We spoke about the persecution in 1 Peter, and three or four years later, the writing of 2, this persecution has continued. But what has changed for the church is not that persecution has been happening, but while physical persecution has increased, so has spiritual persecution. And so now we see, and, and this morning we'll read um, in the account that um, false teachers, accusers, have come into the church, have arisen from the church to teach that which is not true and to seek to lead those astray. And what I really find interesting about this is while this has been taking place, and you might think Peter would begin addressing that problem, he doesn't. Um, we've been in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 for a few weeks, and if you remember, the bulk of 2 Peter chapter 1 is not on dealing with false teachers, but it's on who we are in Christ and who we should be as Christians. And so Peter spends a bulk of his time talking about who we are before he addresses who we are not or who we should avoid. And I think that's intentional. By the time you get to 2 Peter chapter 2 and hear about the false teachers, you've already been told the answer. You've already been told in chapter 1, the answer to false teachers and false teaching is know who you are in Christ to weigh and to measure what they say against the Bible. And if it does not match, if it does not mesh, then avoid it. And so, in some ways, Peter has already preemptively answered the question this morning, what do we do with false teachers in preparing for it, knowing that it was needed for the church? And I think we would all agree it's needed for us today as well. Would you please follow along with me this morning as we hear um, from the apostle God's very word for us today concerning false prophets. I'll begin in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 1. And then I will read through verse 10. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. By his power and through his spirit, he will keep it even unto this day. Would you please bow with me as we go before the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on this time. Dear Heavenly Father, if you do not provide, the tree will not grow. If you do not produce the fruit, we will not see fruit. You've promised through the power of your Holy Spirit to open eyes, to open ears, and to open hearts. I pray that for us this day. May we hear and believe. May we see and be changed. May you speak and our hearts be strengthened and encouraged and most importantly, drawn closer to you. Lord, be with us in this time. Use your word to feed your people, to convict sinners, and to teach us about yourself. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I remember very clearly the first time I was asked what's now become a common philosophical question. Can God create a rock so big that he cannot lift it? If you go to college or have been to college, you tend to hear this question in Philosophy 101. In fact, that's where I first heard this question. Dr. Albert Bisson's Philosophy of Religion at Mississippi State. And I will admit, I grew up in a very small town and lived a very sheltered life. I did not know people who weren't Christians in most of my life. And I certainly didn't know people who not only weren't Christians, but were antagonistic to Christianity. That changed quickly as I went off to college. And it could have been the case that this philosophy professor was trying to lead me down that path as well as many uh, college philosophy professors do. However, I'm very blessed and very thankful that Dr. Albert Bisson was not an atheist. He was not antagonistic to the gospel. Um, he was actually a seminary-trained professor, um, a, a lover of God and a lover of God's Word. And he is one of the key reasons I am who I am today. Because what Professor Bisson would do is he would give these questions. He would make these statements in class and then give the biblical e answers and rationale for them. By the way, so I don't leave you um, in disarray, the answer when that's ever asked, um, you just look at them and say that's a non sequitur or an illogical question and then refuse to discuss it with them further. It, it's a nonsensical question. It doesn't work. And they're simply just trying to trick you and draw you away from God. And it, the same goes if they ask for a round square. But um, just know that these things may come. You know, we shouldn't be surprised, though, that there are people in this world, that there are people that are opposed to God and the things of God. It, it shouldn't surprise us to meet people who not only don't agree with the Bible, but hate the Bible and hate God and hate the truths of God. 
Um, If you go all the way back to the beginning, the father of lies, Satan himself uses this very tactic, doesn't he? Did God really say? The the pattern, the the progression has not changed. A a, a twisting, a a distortion, a questioning of God that that leads down a path of self-indulgence, of self-righteousness, and of sin. And it seems to be the case that these people were influencing the church in Peter's day, that they were affecting the churches in Asia Minor. Churches already racked by persecution, already racked by hardship and difficulty. And so we find ourselves asking, what do we do? What hope is there for us and for the church? And Peter, knowing that this is the case, he, knowing that this is a problem that needs answering, he offers a solution. We will see this in two major sections of our passage this morning. In verses 1 through 3, we will get a character sketch of false teachers. Peter wants us to clearly see and clearly understand what to look for. He draws us a picture and says, this is what a false teacher looks like. If you see someone like this, know they are false. And then in 4 through 10, the second half of our passage, he gives case study after case study after case study of not only how we should be aware of false teachers, but that we should take hope because God has dealt with and continues to deal with them again and again and again. God is not idle. He's not sitting by letting the church be condemned and letting uh, the church be wrecked. But God is actively participating in the lives of his children and of his church. And he is acting and will act in righteousness and in judgment and offer salvation to those who trust in him by faith. And so really today is all about taking heart, dear Christian, to be encouraged to know that the truth will be revealed because the truth is God and it is from God. And he tells us what to do when we interact with that which is not of him and is not true. So would you please follow along with me as we consider these very important lessons from our passage today. We begin with this idea of what is a false teacher. And I think that's helpful. It's hard to know to be on the lookout for something if you don't know what it is. Right? You, you, I tell you beware false teachers and if you don't know what a false teacher is you don't really know what to beware. Be wary of. And so Peter gives us some character traits, some, some identifying markers to keep an eye on. First, admitting that they are real, that false teachers are real. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Biblically speaking, it's been the case in the life of the church, it was certainly the case in Israel that false teachers were there, that taught false messages. Matthew Henry in his commentary, you'll hear him a lot this morning, um, he speaks about when God sends his messengers, when God sends his prophets, when God sends his apostles, when he sends his preachers and his teachers to teach, every time we, we see in the biblical account and we know it in our own lives, the devil so too sends false teachers false prophets, and false apostles. While God preaches and teaches that which is true, the false teachers preach and teach that which is false. In the name, it's right there in the title, false teachers. Now, I I think of a passage, um, and there was many I could select from, but in in the book of Deuteronomy, um, God warns the people 
This is what you do if you see or hear a false teacher. Deuteronomy 13.5 If a prophet or dreamer arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and that sign or wonder comes to pass and he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Do not listen to these words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, we get this sketch. What does a false teacher look like? It looks like someone who tells you to chase other gods, to follow their teaching, and to leave or walk away from the God you know, the God of the Bible. And this is most certainly what's taking place in the case of Asia Minor. People from the church were saying, come follow these gods. Come worship in this way. And how do they do it? Is it um, very public? Is it very out in the open? Is it um, something that uh, they're upfront about? No. With falsehood, with um, desire to sin and, and things of that nature, it's always secretive. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Their playbook is to teach destructive heresy in secret. If you were with us last week, we, we heard the word of God called a lamp, a, a light that shines in the darkness. When God's word, when truth is revealed, darkness flees. It cannot be there in the presence of that which is true, that which is false becomes clear. And so when you have someone teaching false things, teaching um, in this way, they want to avoid the light. They want to do it in secret. They want to do it in subtle ways. Again, following Satan himself, the serpent. We must be critical. It's why I always encourage you, don't simply follow something because someone tells you. And that goes for me. I've said before, if I told you to turn to 2 Peter 7 and you didn't look at me funny this morning, we got a problem. You didn't get that, flip about three pages. And it makes sense in a moment. Always weigh what you're taught against the word of God. And if it does not mash here, then be wary of it. Because this is the tactic used by false teachers. Um, and even more dangerous, um, quite often I find that will see how close they can get it to the truth. They get it almost right. You see that again when you look at Satan in the garden. Did God really say? He gets it so close. What he says to Eve is almost right. And yet it was used to deceive and to, to distract. Now there's, a, there's a, a, a section in here. I want to make sure and take a moment and explain it because it... Um, it can be a bit confusing. One of the marks of a false teacher is, and, and particularly in this case, is these false teachers deny the master who bought them. Now, there's a lot of debate in the commentaries on the specifics of what this means. But the consensus is that these false teachers claim to be a part of the church. That these were people who had professed faith in the church and claimed to be believers and looked like and acted like fellow members of the church. 
So from an outside perspective, from just looking in, you couldn't distinguish them from other members. It looked like they were people bought by the blood of Christ. They may have said that. They may have lived that way to the point that it, it, was, it was difficult or impossible to distinguish them differently. And so the commentators believe that Peter's using a metaphor here. The master that bought them. But then as you looked at their lives, as these, these false truths came to light and they lived it out, what they said they believed, so what they professed with their mouth and what they lived in their heart and what they did through their actions did not match. They claimed to be believers and yet lived like pagans. They claimed to be followers of God and yet taught the teaching of the devil. Their hearts did not mesh what their lives looked like. But what makes that so dangerous? They took the time to get to know the people of the church. They may have served in ministry alongside those people. They spent time together. They looked outwardly like fellow believers. They were not strangers they made light of the sacrificial work of Christ to promote their own views and their own truth. And in time, this came to be known. And again, this makes it so dangerous for the church. This is why we've got to be very wary. False teachers get you to trust them, find ways to look favorable in your eyes, and then slowly over time introduce false teaching. And, and sadly, and, and to me this is the hardest part of this passage, they do so well. What they do, the tactics they use, the methods that they take to do this will work. Peter says, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's not even that they're false teachers, but it's okay because they're bad at it. They know what they're doing. They're intentional in what they're doing. And they're effective in what they're doing as well. Peter is warning us to be careful of false teachers. What they teach is destructive heresy. It will deny the Lord himself. It will lead people astray. And then in verse 3, it comes through aggressive false words. In their greed, they will exploit you. Take advantage of you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Their words lead to condemnation and destruction. They are not sitting around. They are active in what they do and what they teach. It will be a seductive message. It will be tempting to follow. But ultimately it will deny God. And really... While we're talking about false teachers, aren't we really just talking about sin? Isn't this what sin does? Doesn't it seduce us to follow ourselves, our own pleasures, our own passions? Doesn't it seek to draw us away from God and do which we think is right in our own eyes to serve ourselves as our God? Couldn't we really just relabel this passage and this message, what to do with sin? In some ways, the answer is yes. That really is what sin is, because that's what false teachers promote, a sinful life. I put a note here. It would be very understandable at this point to be terrified 
It would be understandable if we stopped here to have a, um, oh no, moment. Because this sounds pretty bad for the church. We're given a picture of who to look out for and who to be aware of. And at the same time, we're told they're going to have their way. And it's going to work. And it's going to be hard for the church. And it's going to be dangerous for your people and for your children. But the beauty of the passage and, and the reason I can't stop here is that Peter does not linger there. He does, not, he does not let you leave with this just good luck. But he shows again and again and again and again that God has a promise. He has really two promises. One, judgment will come for those who teach false teaching. Judgment will come for those who seek to destroy the church and the people of God. And salvation and rescue will come for the people of God in the times of false teaching. Hope will take place during the time of hardship. There is salvation for those who trust in him by faith, even when these times of difficulty arise. And that's what we really see in verses 4 through 10. Let's consider them together now. Peter gives us three case studies in this section. Three case studies of how God brought judgment upon false teachers throughout biblical history. God makes a point that he does not allow false teachers to harm his church without recompense. And this would be enough on its own. But then intertwined in this, we're given two men who are found to be righteous and found salvation in the midst of these times of judgment. And I think this is helpful to see that God's will will be done even in times of counter-biblical teaching. And I find in this section the most hope for the church today. I believe we're in a period of great false teaching. I believe that we as believers need the reminder that God's judgment on the faithless as well as God's salvation for the church is guaranteed and assured. So let's look at these examples, and we'll have to do it very briefly. Um, but I want you to be encouraged. He begins, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And again, it's so funny when Peter says Paul's hard to read, um, because we have to go to the commentators again, because there's debate on what this moment is referring to. Is this the great act of judgment when Satan led a rebellion against God and a third of the heavenly host fell from the sky? Is this an interpretation of Genesis 6 where the sons of God went into the daughters of man? Is this a, a mark of abomination um, when the Nephilim came upon the earth um, and there's unholy sexual union between the two? I don't know. I'll just tell you. I don't have the answer. Here's what John Calvin says, though. Peter mentions here briefly the fall of angels. And since he has not named the time and manner, it behooves us to, be soberly, or to soberly speak on this subject. I like that. Be careful how you respond because God didn't give us more than he gave us. I think that's enough. Um, but then Calvin does go on to, to be helpful on this topic. He says, the argument here is from the greater to the lesser. The angels, the angelic beings, were far more excellent than we are, and yet their dignity did not preserve them from the hand of God. 
And if that is the case, much less then can mortal men escape when they follow the angels in impiety. If God was willing to cast members of the angelic host into chains to await final judgment, how much more so will he do so for the unrighteous? From there, Peter points to another example, another case. Really, um, apart from the great judgment in the book of Revelation, quite possibly the greatest scene of judgment in the scriptures, the flood. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the earth, or excuse me, the world of the ungodly. If we look at Genesis 6-5, we get a clear picture of the scene um, in the time of Noah. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Mankind was in such a state of false teaching. Mankind was in such a state of denying God and practicing that which is false that God wiped out all save eight and the animals on the ark. This should cause anyone tempted to preach and proclaim false teaching to pause. I would be very nervous if I was a, a false teacher and I was peddling my false wares and came across this passage. God is not above wiping the slate clean to purify his creation from sin. But this is very important, and, and this is a, an important but in this passage um, we get one of our cases of righteousness. Even though that's the case, even though that's what, what, what happened, God preserved Noah, and, and, and not only does he preserve him, he calls him a herald of righteousness or a proclaimer of that which is true. Noah is contrasted to the falsehood of everyone else. Noah, who is righteous, is saved. All others outside his family are destroyed. Now, I need to mention here, the only reason Noah's declared righteous is because God told him he was righteous. Noah did not make himself righteous. Noah was not better than everyone else. God said, you are righteous. Noah is saved through faith in God, and in turn, God declares him righteous. But I want to consider this just, just for a moment. I, I know the hour is late. Um, we may feel as a church today we're on the losing side of the cultural battle. We may feel that things are hard that we have false teachers everywhere and that there's no victory and that there's no hope. But this really struck me last night as I was thinking about this passage. As bad as it is for us now and as bad as we think it's going to be, Noah was the only Christian found on the face of the earth. The only one. The church was down to a, a membership of one. And, and by his headship, also his family. It may be bad now, but there's more than that in the room. So take heart, church. It's not as bad as it was in the days of Noah. And it won't be. God will preserve his church until he comes again. It got very thin at times, but God saw them through. That should encourage you today. If you're overwhelmed with this idea of false teaching, know that God will keep us. And then if that's not enough, Peter is really, he's packing on the, the analogies here. He goes again, he, he's progressing in the book of Genesis. He points to, a, uh, to two cities, cities wiped out. He says, if he did not spare the ancient world, but turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, 
He condemned them to extinction, making them examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Told you I'd, I'd be back to Matthew Henry. I love what he says here. See how God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah? Though they were situated in a country like the Garden of Eden, yet if in such a fruitful soil they abounded in sin, God turned a fruitful land into barrenness and a well-watered country into dust and ashes. This was a very fertile place. This was a great place to live, a great place to thrive, a great place to grow and have business. And yet their sin was so pervasive, their sexual sin was so renowned that God's solution was to send fire from heaven and turn it into a crater. And we, we take pause at this to, to note that God was not allowing these people to sin freely without consequence. He was patient, giving time for the opportunity for forgiveness. And yet it did not come, and yet it did not come, and yet it did not come. And so judgment was brought. Rebellion demands judgment. But righteousness and forgiveness leads to salvation and protection. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is contrasted by the life of one, of Lot. We know he escaped this wicked city, and he's our final example from our passage. If he, being God, rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and then commentary on it, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, Lord willing, we're going to um, go back to Genesis when we conclude this series, and we'll get to read about these stories and the story of Lot. And when we get there, you're, you're going to find yourself going, really? Like, he's a man of righteousness? Are you sure about that? But that's what God calls him. God calls him an imperfect man, a man of righteousness, and that should give you hope. Uh, because if Lot can be called righteous, so can you and me. But we get here, his heart was burdened by the sin of the people. His heart was burdened by the wickedness that was going on around him. And God saw fit before the city was destroyed to bring salvation, to bring rescue to Lot. Again, the church, a small number in the midst of a lot of wickedness, a lot of hardship, a lot of just um, living for themselves and living for sin. God brings him out of that just destruction. And, in, and I, I absolutely love it. I, I, I make a note here. I can't offer you a concluding commentary any better than what Peter says about his own passage. So I just, I want to read, uh, when we look at those ifs, we look at the three negatives and the two positives as a whole, just hear the words of Peter in verses 9 and 10 as a commentary on everything we just listened to. If all that is true, everything we've said is true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Dear church, times are difficult, and I'm afraid they will continue to be so. We live in a time where it is hard to share our faith without repercussion, and many live in fear, fear for their lives, for speaking the truth, the truth of this book. Even so, we must take heart because God knows how to deal with the ungodly. He is not idle, but he is continually rescuing the, un, rescuing the godly from trials and is keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the final day of judgment. God will protect his church.
And whether it takes place now or in the final judgment, which again we read in the book of Revelation, God will reward those who pervert his teaching with the judgment that they deserve. So in light of that, we're called daily to live as we're called to live in 2 Peter chapter 1. Live like Christ. Trust in him. By his strength and the power of his spirit, live boldly in a time of darkness, in a time of false teaching and of ungodliness. And trust that God will take care of the rest because he knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, my prayer this day is as my daily prayer. Would you protect this church? Would you protect these people? Lord, would you bless this church with someone who always can stand in this pulpit and proclaim that which is true? Would you keep away from us false teachers and false teachings? Would you care especially for our children and for our little ones who are very susceptible to the lies of this world? And Father, as they go out into this world as we've seen today and we already are celebrating, as they go out, would you send them out as heralds of truth and of righteousness? Would you help them to continue to believe, to proclaim and profess that which they've been taught from a young age? Make them into mighty men and mighty women of God. And be with us, as my brother Luke said, as we care for, as we shepherd those that you've brought to us for a time and for a season. Lord, protect your church and come quickly, Jesus. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.